This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Property Show on the morning run. And I'm Philip C. On today's Property Show, we are in conversation with Gregory Ho Wai Sun and Lim Han Suen from the Kazana Research Institute over their latest research on living next to poor housing as we touch on the much-debated topic of NIMBY, short for Not In My Backyard. A very interesting research paper that you did because there was a lot of analysis done about what the implications of poor housing will have on property prices. But let's take a step back, right? We've heard this theme of NIMBY, Not In My Backyard. Help me explain what this is all about. So, uh, as you mentioned, so NIMBY is short for the Not In My Backyard Syndrome. So, um, in studies, this is described as the oppositional tactics adopted by community groups facing an unwelcome development in their neighbourhood. Unwelcome development can arise from a variety of factors. For example, perhaps uh, residents have health concerns when there are factories built nearby their houses. They have uh, concerns for increased traffic from shopping malls if they were built nearby a property. All of these unwelcome developments are examples of the NIMBY effect. So a good example was back in December last year. Residents from Scott Central Condominium in Brickfields, they opposed against an office tower project for safety and noise concerns. So the very act of you know opposing the office tower project by the community is a very good example of the effect. Because when you cite these examples, you talk about its proximity, perhaps to an industrial facility or the development of a commercial housing or even public transport or infrastructure, right? That There's also this low-cost housing, right, in Klang Valley. That's also got an element of NIMBY, isn't it, to it? So tell me how, how bad is the situation with respect to, you know, low-cost housing impact on other properties then? So when we look in terms of distance and presence, so indeed, there is a NIMBY effect towards low-cost housing. This means that people, means, this means that low-cost housing is unwelcome in certain communities. When we look at it in terms of distance and in terms of presence, there is there is a negative effect towards pri- uh, property prices. To answer your question, yes, this is a problem in Malaysia. And I, and I believe that this is actually a result of progress in Malaysia's economic development, right? As we become more urbanised and people come and move into the city, there is going to be density, isn't it? You are going to see these developments take place. So Gregory, tell me how much low-cost housing has progressed or expanded in our urban centres. I mean, looking at Malaysia's cost of economic growth over the past few decades, there is a lot of inward migration going on where Malaysians from all the various states have shifted into Greater Kuala Lumpur to find a job. To house this increase in population, of course, there must be programs to, to provide the supply of housing, especially for, for the poorer segments of society who may not be able to afford the housing in the cent- in the key centralised locations where labour is needed. So yeah, there, there is a lot of low-cost housing that is being built and I think presently, the, the low-cost housing that we see today, most of it it normally is the result of this 30% quota that developers have to provide as, as part of developing a condominium somewhere. How extensive is this? The formats, the type of uh, supply that's coming through in Klang Valley specifically, right? Where do these low-cost housing stay? Because we typically have a visual impact of PPRs, right? These uh, high-density flats and apartments. But low-cost housing has actually many dimensions and formats, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. So presently, if, if you look at our report, they are this 
distributed quite uniformly across the greater Kuala Lumpur region. This is where you can likely find a low-cost housing complex nearby, irrespective of whichever neighbourhood you reside in. So there are many different formats of low-cost housing, but I think the general typology would be uh, typically between 600 and 750 square feet and it normally consists of three rooms. I think there are some low-cost housing that, that is quite high density as well with lifts, but I think most low-cost housing that you can see are the walk-up types. Your research tells that proximity to low-cost housing does correlate to lower prices. Can you help me quantify the impact? Because how, this is a sign for us to really understand what the real impact of NIMBY is, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, look at it from two points of view. So for example, one is from distance, so we measure like between the, the dis, uh, between the proper, uh, distance from property and the distance from uh, the, from the nearest low cost housing. So there is an effect. So through our our research, we can quantify the effects in terms of ringgits. The first thing that that we have done in our research is that we have used something called the hedonic pricing model. Mm-hmm. So the hedonic pricing model is mainly a means for us to quantify this average, I mean, a statistically average ringgit value for each attribute of of housing lah. So one 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 interesting way of using this model would be to incorporate the, the low-cost housing element into it. And when we place low-cost housing element into it, we, as Sanchen has mentioned, we look at it from two views. We look at it from distance and we look at it from permeance. I mean, the count or the frequency of having many or little low-cost homes within your vicinity. And we have found a statistically significant value for each. So the, the closer one is to low-cost housing, the the greater the impact uh, it has on, on your house on the average house price and the the more number of local homes there is then the more there is also an impact what's the number showing what's the what's the impact quantitatively for, for when we looked at landed properties within a one kilometer radius so for every uh, for every uh, every one kilometer cl- you are closer to a property after uh, a low-cost housing uh, roughly see a decrease in thirty three thousand ringgit I see. How much is that from a percentage standpoint? We say 33,000 ringgit. Can you give me a sense of what is that from a relative valuation percentage? Why? So, so this is an interesting question because from a statistical point of view, there are many ways to slice the, the model, right? To, to give you an, a percentage kind of answer would, would be a bit, um, in, in, in our, our opinion, it would be a, a little bit more misleading lah because um, actually, if you look at the, the degree of impact, it is also different for the lower quantiles of of, of mm. house prices versus yep. the higher quantiles of house prices it would be it would be the fact that so the lower lower the lower quantiles of housing normally they are 250k or 300k and below lah and and the ones at the higher end can go up to millions um if we if we try to quantify an average effect that average effect is is 30, 30 something thousand but if if you want to see how this affects the lower quantiles of prices it would be around 20 to 26000 I see. You know, you said this 30k impact, right, on property prices within that one kilometer radius. Uh, am I? Does that dissipate very fast when you move out uh, 2km, 3km, 5km? Does it kind of normalize back after one kilometer? Is one kilometer that that defined geography where the impact is most stark? So interestingly, we find that um, the effect does dissipate. I mean, in our report, we we describe it in the inverse in the inverse kind of way. So we don't see we don't see much of an impact earlier on. I'm sorry, an impact exists, but 
but the impact intensifies the closer one gets. Mm. Um, if you look at it from the inverse kind of way, then this impact dissipates after five kilometers. I would have thought one kilometer is of substantive distance really, that you would not have that impact even at one km, perhaps 100 meters, 200 meters, 300 meters, like side by side neighbor type would have a much larger impact, right? So I'm very surprised 1km even still has that effect. Why do you think that's the case? Why is it that even at one kilometer, you're still having that impact? Because you, we, we can view this from a few perspectives. I mean, as Sunshine has mentioned earlier, if a factory is in your, in your vicinity, then maybe there, there is concerns about health, about noise and etc. And that impact can be more than 1km or 2km or 3km. So we, we, we actually do... The, the difficulty in framing this sort of research is that I guess different places would have different kind of distance, uh, a distance threshold and we would be unable to tell what the actual distance threshold is. So we had to frame the our regression model in this way in order to investigate at what kilometre does this effect dissipate. So in looking at the literature, we think that Maybe one of the reasons why this is the case is because, sim- very simply, low cost, house- low, low cost housing in Malaysia may not they may not be um, maintained regularly, and there may be um, building dilapidation issues, which potentially could could transform into social ailments as well. Do and deep dive the data. Right, you were saying just now that thirty three thousand discount as a result of that one kilometer proximity. Presumably, that's not evenly defined across the board, right? There are variants and gaps depending on locations as well as the type of low-cost housing or even the age of the housing proximity. What were the factors that very much shaped or defined the, the discount or level of discount that you saw? Uh, distance between low-cost housing, it means that you know, the closer you are, the more that you feel these effects. And there are various reasons why people may not want to you know, live right next to a low-cost housing. So, for example, there can be, uh, you know, in other in other studies done in, uh, in, for example, in America, one of the main reasons is like the lack of, you know, uh, maintenance. So, for example, sometimes low-cost housing they may be not well maintained. So, uh, you know, when when low-cost housing is not well maintained, there will be, you know, building dilapidation. The, con- the building deteriorates, uh, the pain becomes dirty, or you know, there's maybe rubbish build up because of uh, lack of maintenance. So all of this may make you know, the low-cost housing not pleasing to people who live nearby and end up you know, pushing away nearby home buyers. So another reason why this may happen is because of overcrowding. So for example, cost housing typically may be higher density and you know, some, some units may have um, more families living in them. When, when there's this high density, so end up, so you end up having you know the nearby facilities, neighborhood facilities being more overcrowded. So for example, uh, car parks or road sites may be filled with motorcycles or cars parked nearby, or like parks may be overcrowded with more children. So all of this may may cause uh, may cause home buyers to be pushed away from from low cost housing. So which is why you know the closer you are, the larger the effect. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Actually, you make two points which are interesting. One is the aesthetic of the location, right? The fact that when they look old and they're not refreshed, it does kind of affect the aesthetic of the location. And secondly, you talk about the density of the location. That if you have more density in um, a certain proximity, then it does lead to congestion and also uh, overcrowding. I wonder then, if when I listen to you, interventions then are quite easy to implement, isn't it? I mean, if you were talking about putting in place policies to kind of 
reduce the density of low-cost housing or even to upgrade or maintain better these properties? Is it easy to do these things or is it challenging? I think what you said makes a lot of sense. If low-cost housing is maintained well, then we, we actually think that the this this sort of discount on, on house prices would dissipate. We think that the, 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 the main issue is because low-cost housing is, I mean, based on our literature review, we think the, the main reason is because low-cost housing is not maintained well. That, that is the reason why uh, a discount exists. But if it is maintained in the right way if or in a way where one is unable to differentiate between, ah, this is low-cost housing or this is not low-cost housing, then there is no reason why there, there should be a discount. Uh, also, you, you mentioned earlier the uh, maybe difference in terms of location and difference in terms of type. We, we did not specifically test for, for all the different locations, but we did test uh, in terms of type. And we do find that there is a difference whether it is privately managed low-cost homes versus the ones that are governmentally managed. By that, I mean the PKNS, Perumahan Awam and the PPRs. And we're going to have that conversation about the differences between private and government-owned managed low-cost housing. After the break, on today's Property Show, we're in conversation with Gregory Ho Son and Lim Han Suen from the Kazana Research Institute over their latest research on living next to poor housing. We'll be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to the Property Show on the Morning Run. I'm Philip C. and with me today is Gregory Ho Wai Sun and Lim Han Suen from Kazana Research Institute over their list, re- latest research on living next to poor housing as we touch on the much-debated t- topic of NIMBY or not in my backyard. Gregory, just now, we ended the last conversation saying that there were differences, right, between whether a low-cost housing or development was managed privately or by the government. What was your research saying? Our research have found that the difference is more pronounced for for privately managed low-cost homes as compared to the ones that were government-managed. And um, initially, um, I, I would say that this is one of the more interesting findings that we did not anticipate, perhaps because of all the news that we have been reading about PPRs and whatnot. We thought that um, at least, at the very least, the, the effects would be the same. But interestingly, it, it shows that the, the effect is more pronounced for privately managed low-cost homes. I wonder, can you hypothesize why that could be the case? Well, I guess, yeah, it's just, an, it's just a hypothesis. But we think that government-managed low-cost homes, right, they have, they have the government to take care of its maintenance. And yes, there may be issues in the way, the, in the way local councils do it, but at least there is someone that is doing it. I mean, at least the, the lifts are functioning. I mean, most of the time, I mean, we, we read a lot about how they malfunction, but at least there is someone to go there and fix it. But I, I guess in privately managed low-cost homes, because these are earmarked for the, the, the lower in the segment of society, which, which is of a lower income, we think that sometimes in this segment, um, residents may not have a lot of time to, to form uh, joint management bodies uh, they re- to regularly meet and re- and take and take and take care and manage these issues so perhaps these when when there are issues in privately managed local homes these issues are left perpetually and nobody really fixes it right is this an issue of money then in which that perhaps for government owned or managed public housing low-cost housing um, there is government fi- funding and budget in place, but not so the case when it's privately managed. Is there an issue of money here or funding? Yeah, there is an issue of funding. So, you know, because many of, uh, naturally because of the low-cost home, so many of the families inside may be from, you know, lower-income families. So naturally, they have, you know, maybe less income to, uh, they, they have less disposal income to, 
you know, pay for these maintenance fees. And also in terms of like jo uh, joining uh, meetings. So many of these families, maybe they struggle, to, uh, perhaps they struggle to, you know, make ends meet, they juggle a few jobs. And um, joining these meetings may not be a priority for them. Uh. So uh, this ends up, you know, with having poor maintenance. How do we solve it then, you know, Hanswen? You know, what can we do to enable private housing to have the necessary resources and facilities to do? Does, does it require government intervention and support, you think? So there are many different um, models of how low-cost housing can be managed. So if you look at Singapore, then then yes, um, you, you have a higher level of government involvement. But I think if you look at other countries like Germany or, or places like Vienna, it's more of a decentralized kind of system where both the residents, I mean, the residents of the low-cost housing, the government, civil society, academia, and everybody sort of like coming together to, to form a way out or a way to overcome these problems and to have a, a, a more vibrant society. So I think in, in Malaysia, our thinking is still quite at the level where we think about housing provision as in, oh, um, we have this number of people that needs homes and we, we need to provide this amount of, of uh, housing units for them. But I think if we want to make things better, we need to adopt a more urban development kind of viewpoint where you think not just in terms of of just solving one issue that is housing, but of making the neighbourhood inclusive and vibrant yeah. at the same time. Yeah, not only the apartment building per se or the house per se, but it's also the community around. I wonder when you talk about the issues or examples taking place, how bad is this price distortion in other countries, right? Do you see that difference also quite prevalent as well in other countries when low-cost housing whether maintained or not well-maintained, is also having an impact on property prices. What does your research tell? Earlier on, when me and Anshan, we were sitting together and discussing these things out, we thought of doing a cross-country comparison. I mean, between all the different countries in the world, developed, not developed, maybe Southeast Asian uh, countries versus um, other countries. But apparently not, not every country does this sort of research, so we couldn't find sort of like a means to do an apple-to-apple -apple comparison. In fact, most of our uh, our comparisons are from the United States as well as, I mean, some from Africa. But And, and this is interesting because it, it goes to show that in even in developed markets where, where there is a, a strong distinction between, between housing units itself, that means there is social housing for the poor and then um, the market housing for the rest of society, then you see these kinds of problems emerge. In societies where one is unable to differentiate which is social, social housing and which is market, then, then actually we, we, we don't really see these sort of issues happening. So I'm, I'm talking about places like Germany or the Netherlands or, or, um, or Vienna. I think Vienna is a very good example. I mean, the places that have done this quite well. How can we then, as a society, kind of break this stigma? Or is it just very hard to, you know, in your experience and seeing how other countries deal with it, how do we kind of overcome this uh, problem then? One, one lesson to take away is to, to really dive into um, the subjective reasons of why this stigma exists in the first place and whether these reasons are justified. So, for example, there may be aversion to a water treatment plant because... Um, in the past, people have seen accidents around water treatment plants that affect their lives. Um, it, it really boils down to, to an execution kind of issue. If 
if the water treatment plant, if institutions can guarantee that the water treatment plant is, is done well, maintained well, and, and things go on on a good kind of basis, then there, I, I believe that there isn't a basis to worry about its adverse effects on our lives because these this adverse effects might not, might not even exist. We talk about the adverse effects. I guess then on the flip side is you also have social infrastructure like transport, right? I remember when we had MRT, so much uproar over the development of you know MRT infrastructure in Tamantun. And then we also now see the PJD link uh, along the highway for Petaling Jaya residents. Also a lot of residents. In this case here, sometimes the infrastructure also does help the community, but it also does impact property prices. How do we treat that differently then? One of the interesting findings that we that we have found uh, in, in relation to MRTs is that um, train stations affect non-landed housing and landed housing sort of differently. People coming from landed housing seem to, there seems to be a negative uh, effect, while people in non-landed housing benefited from having a train station in their vicinity. And this, this is based on this statistic, our statistical model. We, we think that maybe maybe for the landed housing, you might be concerned about noise, Emissions. or maybe even security. Mm. But for non-landed housing, which is typically, which typically have their own security and sort, they're sort of like insulated in ways that, that landed, landed units do not enjoy, then, then you see how this public infrastructure becomes sort of like an asset to them. Yeah, fascinating because you would think that even the economics of public transport work when you are in high proximity as well to dense locations like apartments and condos. But as landed properties likely to have your own car and transport, so they probably wouldn't value it as much as well. And the interesting dimensions there. So when you think about actions taking going forward, how how should government then con you know, what actions does the government need to take then to kind of address this problem? I think as part of the planning process, one of the steps that the governments do take is that is that they engage with local residents on, on, on these sort of things. Like if you want to build an MRT in the neighborhood, they would they would have to engage uh, the residents. But I think this engagement process can be improved in a variety of ways. It can be made. Sometimes I feel that these these sessions where where you engage the residents, the the input of the residents may not really be taken into consideration. And maybe certain resident neighborhoods have a stronger voice. And they they know how to phrase things in 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 better ways, and they are more likely to get what they want. So it's not. It's not as if um, neighbourhoods themselves are, are homogeneous. Thank you for being on the show, guys. I've been speaking with Gregory Ho Waisan and Lim Hansuan from Kazana Research Institute over their latest research on living next to poor housing as we touch on the much-debated topic of NIMBY, short for Not In My Backyard. I'm Philip C, signing off for The Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.